Hey guys, before we get started on today's episode, I don't know if you remember back in episode 171, I talked to two men, Dominique Cortuccio and Brian Stacy. They are the host of the Man Amongst Men podcast. And I just wanted to give them a shout out, make sure that you check them out after listening to today's episode. These hosts tackle problems that men never talk about, but secretly struggle with. They believe that a man operates in the highest version of himself when he creates an environment where he and others can thrive. A few of their notable episodes, Why Men Should Do Inner Work, The Number One Enemy to Living a Powerful Life, and even 11 Ideas to Design Your Morning Routine. When you get done with today's episode, make sure you search for The Man Amongst Men on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Flow is the premise of living an effortless life by making decisions, by following your intuition not making decisions based on your head or common sense, but what your heart and your intuition feels. Some people might refer to it as what their gut tells them. I've always felt immense fear. I was born with several falls. I have always felt small. I was told not to take risks. I may be blind, but I teach people how to see. And I'm proud to be an individual. This podcast is for you, the unconventional leader. Maybe you are the one that everyone discounted. Maybe you struggle with fear and self-doubt. We are here to empower the next generation of self-starters to step up. Use their voice and make an impact in this world. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. If this is your first time listening, my name is Heather Parody. I am your host. Hope you're having a great day week. Today, we connected with Michael G. Dash. He is an entrepreneur, best-selling author, recovering addict, mentor, speaker, and philanthropist. He founded the FATE series, which stands for From Addict to Entrepreneur, published on Thrive Global and Medium, and runs a hands-on 10-week FATE program to help entrepreneurs dealing with addiction and compulsive behaviors. Michael shares with us his story today about how he was introduced to gambling at the age of 11 and how that led to a series of addictions, including cocaine and an addiction to money. Until a few years ago when he went on this random trip to Bali and was introduced to this concept of flow state, intuition, and a higher power. Michael says he was like the last guy on earth to really tap into this and start studying it, but it really changed his life. And today he shares with us why he has shifted his entire career to helping others who struggle with addiction and help them become the type of business leader, friend, partner that they want to be. If you know anyone who has struggled with addiction or currently is struggling with addiction and would benefit from this conversation, make sure you check out Michael Dash at michaelg-.com and also share this interview with them. Just take a screenshot of this interview, send it over DM, text message, whatever it is. We want to impact as many people as we can this year. Need your help to do it. So thank you so much for sharing this out. All right, guys, let's get into this interview with Michael G. Dash. I grew up, my dad was an entrepreneur, so I learned that at an early age what it was to work hard. I mean, he worked 12 hour days, basically my entire childhood. So the only way I would get to see him is if I worked with him. 
and he had me working at an early age, like eight, nine, ten. I was in his store working for him. He had an import-export business and a retail operation all around fine china and crystals and collectibles, like things like Swarovski, if you're familiar with like Swarovski crystal, crystal. And like probably when you got married, all the china and everything, I probably know more about that than you may. <laughs> now, is that your entire life, like just growing up? I mean, did he retire doing that? He did retire doing that. And, you know, when I went to, he was still doing it when I went to college. And when I got out of college, in the 80s, actually, is when it kind of, towards the end of the 80s, it kind of fizzled out a little bit because uh, his primary audience was women. And in the 80s, there was a shift where much more women became working moms. So they weren't just stay-at-home moms anymore. So they didn't have the amount of time to go to all these, you know, individual stores and they would go to malls back back east at least. Mm. So they could do their one-stop shopping in a mall and they could shop for themselves. They could shop for their husbands. They could shop for their kids all in one place. So the malls really... Uh, impacted his business significantly in the 80s. By the end of it, he he was out. Yeah. And what about your mother? Which, did she work alongside you guys? No, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so she raised us, and she was involved in the schools, and she brought us to all the sporting events, and she'd be screaming that voice I still have in my in my, in my mind uh, <laughs> from fans at all the sporting events and yelling like a crazy mom. Yeah. Um, so she was involved with like the principal and she would uh, volunteer for the mayor and stuff like that. So your perspective looking back now that you've had, you know, business success and so forth, are you grateful that your dad was kind of quote workaholic and put you in the store at nine years old? Or was it something that you wish kind of looked a little bit different? It's a great question. You know, I view everything in life. There's positives and negatives. You know, I can choose to view it. Either way, sure. Uh, I'm going to view the positive side of it that he instilled a work ethic in me that allowed me to become successful. Yeah. Now, at the same time, <laughs> uh, I also wish I had maybe learned work smarter, not harder. But that wasn't really the mentality. The mentality back then was just grind it out. You're the first one in, you're the last one out. And that's how you get ahead in life. And that's what I took with me into work. And that is how I got ahead. I didn't outsmart people. I outworked people. Do you think at the beginning you need to work harder instead of smarter? And then maybe you have the luxury of smarter, not harder later on? Or do you think you can apply that principle from the very beginning? I think you can apply you can apply a combination of both principles at the very beginning, and that's the best way to go about it. Uh, but I do think that you you have to bust your ass. Uh, you know, excuse the French. You have. To, um, <laughs> we say ass all the time on the show. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to bust your ass to get ahead in the beginning because if you're not doing it, then the person next to you will be. Really? Right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the reality of the situation. However, I do wish that along the way, when automation started happening and, you know, things of that nature, that I maybe latched onto that. And I never really built my business that way. It was just a ground and pound business. I had a staffing company, a recruiting company. Mm-hmm. So I was in that business and in industry for 20 years and I had my own business for 11. And it was just a ground and pound mentality where it was just 
make as many calls as you can, knock at as many doors as you can, a numbers game, and that's how I got my business. And, and that was really indicative of how the jobs I had previous to that, because in college, I went door to door selling home improvements while I was in college. Yeah. Uh, and when I came out of college, my first job was working on the phones, making calls for 12 hours a day, selling advertisements in like a football and basketball programs for five colleges across the country. Yeah. So we work the East Coast in the morning and the West Coast at night. And so I just had that mentality of just pound it, pound it, pound it and, and work the numbers. Yeah. Now, one of the things I've, I've heard you mention before is uh, over the past few years, you've kind of been, uh, lack of better terms, kind of awakened to this other side of yourself and uh, kind of just really getting in tap with with some just deeper purpose work. When you talk about the flow, you know, getting getting into a flow state and all that, and all that's really relatively new to you really for the past few years, because correct me if I'm wrong, during kind of like this busting your ass, building these businesses, succeeding and all of that, there was kind of an underlying issue that was going on really from childhood with this being a, addicted to addiction, if, if I may. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about that journey? Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting the way you put it, addicted to addiction. I think uh, that's the first time anybody said that to me, and uh, it's actually true. Uh, I moved from one addiction to the other. It started at 11 years old when my uncle introduced me to gambling at Thanksgiving. And I remember it clear as day. I was with my family, and then I saw my uncle secluded away from everybody else, like glued to the television. And I was wondering, like, what are you watching? What are you so intent on? So, you know, I ran over to him, and, you know, he took out this, took out this sheet from his pocket, and he showed me, all the football games with the spread in between them. And for your audience, if they don't know what the spread is, in every football game, there is a point spread or any any sporting event. There's a point spread of, you know, one team is a favorite, one team is an underdog, and you can place a wager uh, on either team based on the point spread and who you think would win. So my uncle told me that he bet $10 and if he got four games right on his little sheet, then he would win a hundred dollars. Wow. And I was immediately so excited about this. And he's like, "Yeah, if you want to play, go get ten dollars from your parents." So I ran over to my parents and I asked them for ten dollars. I didn't tell them what it was for, and my father said no. And then so I asked for my mother and. I told her we were getting sandwiches because I was staying with my uncle that night. And so she gave it to me. And so I bet uh, that $10 and it was the first time I bet and I won. And the exhilaration of winning those four games and winning $100, I was 11 years old with $100. I thought life was uh, couldn't get any better. And I was hooked since then. Mm. What do you think it was about gambling per se? Because that was something that carried on for several more years. I mean, into into adulthood. What is it about that that was so attractive? It was the thrill. It was the rush. It was that adrenaline feel. What we now know that dopamine hit. Back then, nobody knew what dopamine was. There was no such thing. Um, you know, I'm old. You can see these grays in my beard. Uh, but but um, it was act, looking back on all of it and being able to assess it, it was actually the same feeling I got when I closed a sale. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And that's why I was into sales so much my whole life. So it, it was both those things were connected for me. 
and you know that addiction was a 20-year addiction that went all the way up i mean when you growing up in jersey i was just around that. i worked for my dad so i was in his warehouse all the guys in the warehouse were gambling then i'm playing little league baseball my little league coach is a bookie mm. and so he starts taking bets from us when I'm like 13, 14, 15, and we're going to OTB, which is uh, off-track betting. So yeah. you go and you watch all the horse races, and then the Meadowlands racetrack was about a half an hour from my dad's store. So I would go to the Meadowlands racetrack at 14, 15 years old, yeah. and then, then I would just play cards with my friends on the weekends. It was like predominant in my life from that early age. And it just continued. And every single day, I went to sleep thinking about gambling, and I woke up thinking about gambling. I would schedule everything around these games and around different gambling activities. And at what point did you say, Michael, this is a problem? Uh, well, the interesting part is I never actually said that. It, mm. it was just like a, a moment in time where an opportunity presented itself to actually get help. And this was after college. So I went to college and I actually became a bookie. And at the same time, I started experimenting with drugs. Mm. So, you know, gambling at some point wasn't getting me high enough. So I needed something else to really get to that next level. It was just kind of balancing me out, the gambling. And that's when I discovered cocaine and cocaine and gambling for me were like tied at the hip. So every time I would gamble, I, I would do cocaine and uh, it, it really got out of control. It was a trip back. It's crazy because it's all around, uh, evolves around Thanksgiving. These, these moments I took with my brother driving back to Thanksgiving from New Jersey to Massachusetts, where he would not allow me to put on sports radio. And I was addicted to sports radio because I needed to know all the injury updates, everything going on in all these sporting events so I knew who to bet on. And my brother also gambled, but at the time he told me I can't listen to sports. Uh, I can't listen to sports radio. You know, my I, I'm going to Gamblers Anonymous. I said, what? He's like, yeah, I'm going to Gamers Anonymous. I'm not allowed to listen to this. We got to listen to music. So we got in this argument. I finally relented, and we listened to music. Three and a half hours later, I was like, <sighs> I like was able to take this deep breath. I don't know if you heard that breath, but it was a deep one. And I basically was like, wow, that was the most relaxing ride I've had in a long time because my mind was racing around listening to this sports stuff all the time. And I thought to myself, I want to know what this gambler's anonymous did to my brother. Where's my brother? I want him back. And so based off of that thought, I went to a meeting the next week. He didn't tell me to go. He didn't ask me to go. He didn't say I should go because I would have resisted. It was just like a curiosity that I tapped into that led me to go to that meeting. And so I went to the meeting, Gamblers Anonymous meeting. I walked in. I looked around and I'm like, what a bunch of degenerate losers. Like, that's really what I thought. I walked in with my pinstripe suit and my flashy watch. I was working in New York City. I was making six figures. I was 24, whatever, 25. I forgot how old I was. And uh, I just saw these older people around. And they were, they, but actually, after two hours, after they all shared their stories, a light bulb went out, went on. And I realized I had more in common with everybody there than I did with my closest friends. 
Because of the gambling? Because of the mentality, like what we thought all the time, chasing money, just mm-hmm. our mind constantly racing, like not focused on other aspects of our life, just completely out of control in that gambling and just like a vicious cycle. Yeah. And so when that started getting addressed, you're in your mid twenties. Now you mentioned, you know, having this cocaine addiction as well. Did that take a few more years to, to address that or was it, did you kind of go through a recovery period with both of them? No, actually I didn't. Um, I was in New York city and, you know, I was servicing the financial services uh, uh, sector a lot and cocaine is prevalent in that sector. So we would go out all the time and party and we'd be at clubs and cocaine was everywhere. And I did it all the time. Every weekend I would be doing cocaine and then I'd be smoking marijuana to come down from the cocaine. And uh, it wasn't until years later that I actually was at a bar with my friend. He got in an argument with some stranger. I went over to kind of break it up and I got punched straight in the face and it broke my nose. And so I went to get my nose fixed. And after they repaired it and everything, they gave me a bill and the bill was $10,000. And that day I said, I will never put anything up this $10,000 nose again. Really? That was it? That was it. That was the last time I did cocaine. And and the the reason is you have to understand my mentality at that point, even though we discussed all this stuff, this is all around my fascination, my obsession, my drive for money. All I wanted was money, money, money. My whole life until like the last three years of my life. Everything I did was a cost-benefit analysis in my head of where can I make more money? And that's what I did. Where do you think that came from? I think it came partly from my father was successful, right? Um, He wasn't rich, but he was middle class, right? So we were always comfortable. Not all my friends were. In fact, most weren't. You know, most my my parent, my father was more successful than most of my friends' parents. They were like more blue collar type workers and stuff. And I think it was part that, but also part of like media and part of like being in, you know, gambling and being a bookie and having cash all over. And I also, I I didn't uh, reveal this, but when I was in college, I was also dealing drugs. Mm. So I was a bookie and dealing drugs. So I had money all over the place. And I I just didn't treat it as like real. It was just like paper to me. Uh, But I had that big man on campus syndrome. Like I had that ego driving everything. I wanted all the attention. And I literally had in my mind, I literally would tell people this, and it's the most ridiculous thing in the world now Mm -hmm. that I think I even said things like this. But I was like, I'm going to work my ass off till I'm 50 years old. And at 50, I'm going to retire and I'm going to get a yacht and I'm going to have women on the yacht fanning me with big leaves and feeding me grapes. And like, this is what I would tell people. Like, I believe this. Like, this is what I was, this is my future. It's so absurd and ludicrous and stupid and ridiculous. But it was actually true for me at the time. That's yeah. what, that's where my head was. Yeah. What's difficult about all this, Michael, is like when you, when you grow up with this, with this mentality and you're, you're literally your brain's been wired for this certain train of thought and years and years and years of, of conditioning and living this certain way with these deep rooted belief systems. I mean, 
something had to have intersected and drastically changed that for, for you to be sitting in front of me here today and have written the book that you have and have this program that you have and be so self-aware that you can say, hey, I was addicted to money. I was addicted to this and that. What happened in your life for you to become very aware of this, uh, let alone when I, when I go public with it? Yeah. So during this time, uh, I could just catch you up real quick. After being in New York City, I followed a business opportunity to Salt Lake City, Utah, where I only knew one person. I had an opportunity to open a company with my best friend in New York. He was offering me 30%. Or with a woman I had worked with for one year in New York previous to that, she was offering me 50%. So, you know, based on what I already told you about money, you know my decision is 50 is bigger than 30. I'm going there. Little did I know he would have a $25 million company and 30% would have been a hell of a lot more if I stayed, but that's neither here nor there. So I went to Utah. I opened this company with her. We were pretty successful. We built it up to five and a half million dollars in five years. So we were doing pretty good. And I opened the bar. I was still living that lifestyle. And I discovered a couple of years in, I stopped doing the cocaine. That all happened. But when I was out there, I discovered Adderall I was introduced to, which was lethal for me because I was taking it every single day. GHB, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but I was doing that on the weekends. And I was still smoking pot every day. And I had a couple of back surgeries, so I got hooked on opiates. It was just craziness. And I was like running marathons. I was putting all this stuff in my body and I was like ran four marathons while I was doing all these drugs. It was absolutely insane. And, you know, I remember being on my New York City Marathon and popping 20 milligrams of Adderall. And I remember the feeling of like my heart almost exploding. It was probably one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. Thankfully, nothing happened. Uh, But I went there. I built the company up with her. I bought her out five and a half years in. And right after that, we got in a very nasty legal battle. So that legal battle, like I felt she violated the agreement uh, due to a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I'll skip some of that. And um, we got into this legal battle. That legal battle lasted six years, six years. It was over 350K, uh, but it ended up costing me over $1 million in legal fees. And I was still an arrogant, egotistical CEO, and my ego was driving all these decisions. And then the money thing and all these thoughts in my head of don't, you know, my dad, I would ask, you know, for advice. And he would just be like, you don't let anybody screw you over. Nobody screw my son over. So that would fuel my decisions. And, you know, even though he meant well, um, if there's one piece of advice I can leave for the audience, like do not ask your family for business advice, especially your parents, because they're in a protective mode. They want to protect you, right? So they're not thinking about the ramifications of whatever they say to you. And, um, you know, that was something I learned, but I didn't know at the time. So I, uh, it just kept driving on and on and on. And at some point, 
one of the entrepreneur groups I was a part of, we have this shared Facebook page. And I remember logging on there one day. I wasn't really active in it, but I logged on there one day. And somebody put a post up about a trip to Bali. And I always wanted to go to Bali. I don't know why. I just heard Bali and I just always wanted to go. I never researched it. I'm just like, so I clicked on it and I'm like, I'm going to Bali. And I registered for this thing. And I was miserable. I was very upset. I was, you know, lawsuit. I was very emotional about everything. I felt completely stuck. Even though I had this business, the business was running me at the time. I was not running it. I had like 40 employees. They were running me. Um, you know, I had a couple houses as investments. They were also taking control of taking over my life. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't want anybody to feel bad for me because these are high society problems, right? Um, but, and they're all self-inflicted. All the problems I had in my life, like a lot of people, I caused. Nobody else caused. I caused them. And I fueled them. I didn't look for the solution. I looked to get even. Like, that's just my mentality. So this Bali trip, back to your original question that I just took 20 minutes to answer. Your, this, the Bali trip is what changed my perspective on everything. When I took this trip to Bali and I discovered two people in one of the sessions we had there, it was a retreat, talking about flow. And that's what changed my whole dynamic on everything. What is flow? So flow is the premise of living an effortless life by making decisions, by following your intuition mm. and not making decisions based on your head or common sense, but what your heart and your intuition feels. Some people might refer to it as what their gut tells them, right? Mm. And that if it's not a hell yes, cover your ears, kids, it's a fuck no in everything that you do in life. And I never thought of things like that at all. So my mind was just like, and when I first heard them, I resisted them completely. Uh, They were giving me all these stories of how they were invited to speak all over the world, flown for free. They quit their corporate jobs. They were very successful in the corporate world, but they quit their corporate jobs through circumstances to study flow and really dive into it. And they were just giving all these, what I thought were absurd examples, like of them meeting like Melinda Gates, like Bill Gates' wife and being invited to her foundation and like talking to all these other amazing people and that they're going to go and present on Richard Branson's Island and like all these things that I'm like, get out of here. I'm like, this is such nonsense. And, and I also grew up on the East Coast. So I thought anything about flow or energy, or astrology, or yoga, meditation. I thought that was all just shishi nonsense, right? And I wouldn't really speak to people like that. I would like put them over in this category all over here. Like they're a bunch of weirdos. This is how life is run and run it the way, the only way I knew, which was not working for me. You can introduce this flow thing and this, this idea of intuition. When you really stopped and listened there, what was your intuition telling you right then at that time? So I, we were in a room of 30 people and I lifted my, I actually raised my hand. I actually now feel it was an energetic force, which I didn't believe it back then, that actually got my hand to raise. And 
I dumped all my shit in that room about how much pain I was in, how miserable I was, my gambling addiction uh, that I was over at that point, but that it was still affecting me, drug addiction. Adderall was really killing me at the time. I was taking Adderall every single day, and it was really messing with my emotional state, which fueled how I treated my employees, which was not good. Like, I was not an empathetic boss. I was a jerk to be honest with you, until the last three years I had my business. Um, and I met it with resistance. I called them out. They said, let's talk after. I sat with them an hour before I left. They were telling me, I was telling them about my lawsuits, like five years at that point, how much pain I was in. I just wanted it to end. I didn't see a way out. And they were telling me how they worked with this this couple who's getting divorced, nasty divorce. After they worked with them, six months later, they settled it. Again, I just, my bullshit meter was up. But I went home and I flew back to the U.S. And the entire flight, I thought to myself, would it be so bad to live a different way? And I just kept repeating that sentence to myself to get over myself to get over my ego to get over my preconceived notions and then when i got back home i took their course and it's called flow consciousness institute if anybody is interested and i would highly check it out i mean they do amazing work so i took their like 10-week course it was like a thousand dollars and again, with my money thing, I was like, they're scamming me out of my money, but I'm going to do it anyway, because how bad could it be to live a different way? And so I took their course and we went through this whole process of clearing out our limiting beliefs. So we went through this process where you're writing all your limiting beliefs out and then using tapping and EMDR, if you're familiar with that, where you're like tapping on the back of your neck and you're moving your eyes back and forth and you're repeating your living beliefs out loud to clear them. And you work through this whole process. I didn't judge it for the first time. I just did it. And they were talking about how I'd be able to manifest things in my life and see all the synchronization all over the world. And like, mm -hmm. I never said those two words ever in my life. Uh, and they actually started to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I know we're, we're wrapping up on time and th this is such a powerful conversation. Um, let me just ask you this. Is, is that when you decided to start talking about the addiction that you've dealt with like publicly? It was pro it was like a year after that. I, I was getting to it. It was, uh, uh, but it was like a year after that where I was at, I was kind of at an event and somebody uh, at uh, an entrepreneur event, there was somebody else there who owned this company who helped people write books. Mm. And after he spoke, I went up to him and I said, uh, you know, I think I want to write a book. It was just like that. And I, I feel like I have a lot to share because I was going to Gamblers Anonymous meetings and I was leading those meetings and I was helping other people who were struggling. So mm. I felt like, you know, maybe I'll tell my story. And so after about a year, when I came back from that trip, I was still in the lawsuit. I ended up fast forward. I ended up settling the lawsuit and selling my company last year in the same week in last year in June. And then I finished my book. I went back to Bali for the second time in December. And I finished my book uh, in December and January. And then I published the book in June of this year and then stepped forward and 
you know, I, I left the company so I could make an impact on other entrepreneurs and business leaders who are struggling with addictive and compulsive behavior challenges so they can step into the leader, spouse, and friend that they truly were meant to be. Because I saw so many around me struggling with the same thing, but hiding and afraid to come out because of the roles that they had in leading their companies and what the ramifications might be. Now, you've shifted a lot of different identities over the past few years. I mean, you have, you know, I mean, in college, dealing drugs and, you know, gambling and then successful business owner and doing all of these things. And then now you're kind of leaning into kind of like this intuitive flow state, Michael, and all of this. And this is some really, these are some big shifts. And I was wondering, like, how have you kind of conceptualized like identity now, like your role? Uh, because you, you still have business, you're still a businessman and you still have money and like all this stuff. Like, how do you view that differently now than you did three years ago? I don't have a lot of money because I settled, I spent a million dollars, like all the money I had saved up. America, and, we still have money. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, but, but what I'm saying is um, because I don't have a lot of it, it's not like, um, I, I went through this little transition with money. At first I was disgusted with money and I said, I will not, because I, I spent over, lost over a million dollars in a lawsuit, which was my fault. But, um, you know, I went through this transition of saying, I will never do anything for money again. If money is the strict reason why I'm doing something, I'm not going to do it. And like money isn't that big a deal for me. Uh, you know, I want to make impact. I want to see people's lives changing. But like a good friend of mine, uh, Chris Harder, uh, for the love of money, he's got his own podcast. And like, I met him in, in Lewis Howe's mastermind mm -hmm. and I had a conversation with him and he's, he basically said to me, well, Michael, I, I get what you're saying, but how do you expect to impact all these people if you don't have money? Like, how are you going to reach all of them if you're not successful? And duh, <sighs> I mean, it's obvious. Right. And so my mindset shifted a little bit. I'm like, you're a hundred percent right. You know, and that's when, you know, I decided I want to build this course out and mentor others. And that's what I'm working on now. It's a, a, my FATE course, uh, F-A-T-E, which stands for From Addict to Entrepreneur. And I also have an interview series that I write uh, articles on Thrive Global uh, for that. And uh, so, so that's what I'm focused on now, making impact. But also, you know, obviously I need to earn a living doing that so I can make more impact and greater impact. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, to get the story out there beyond just my circle of people. Was there resistance sharing your story that openly? When I was writing the book, there was resistance. Yeah. I was like, eh, maybe I shouldn't share that, or maybe I should, or maybe I shouldn't talk about transporting 20 plus pounds of marijuana across state borders when I was in my 20s, because my parents are going to be like, yeah. what kind of child did I raise? Yeah. And that did happen. My mom was a little emotional, but you know, I told her it, it would have happened either way. It had nothing to do with you. Yeah. Um, but uh, so there was, uh, I went through some emotions writing the book and everything, but you know, I am who I am and I hid for the majority of my life and I don't want to hide anymore. And I want to encourage others not to hide either because the only way that we can help each other is by talking about these things. Yes. 
Like I just got a message on LinkedIn the other day. I was telling you before the show and it put chills up and down my body because a 22 year, you know, Navy or army vet. Uh, well, he's not a vet, but 22-year-old army guy wrote a message to me that he stumbled upon my book. He read it, and it's like changed his whole perspective. And you know, he was drinking out of control and hanging out with the wrong people out of control, and he's totally shifted his mindset around these things. And you know, I have a chapter in Chasing the High called "The Habit of Habit Making" and how important it is to build strong habits in your life. And as you continue to evolve, to replace the old habits with habits that now resonate with you mm-hmm. because the whole goal in life is to continue to grow and evolve and it's simple stuff but it's things that if we're, it's not in our face then we yep. forget to do it and then we yep. get our stuck yep. and so to receive a message like that that's like this is why I'm doing what I'm doing yep mm. Michael, I have one final question for you. But before we do that, uh, the, the entire reason I started this show, Unconventional Leaders, is I heard so many people say, well, Heather, I can't do X because you don't know where I came from. You don't know what I did. You don't know this or that without understanding that some of those influential people were the ones who went through some of the most hell. And the fact that you're willing to share your story in such a vulnerable way and help so many people, complete strangers, speaks volume about you. And so I'm just so grateful to know you. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Where can people grab your book, connect with you? You have a 10 week program. If any of this resonated with anyone listening. Yeah, so they can get my book if they're watching this. There's a copy of my book called Chasing the High. And they can get my book on Amazon. It was an Amazon bestseller. So I'm very fortunate. Uh, And it's the link is just Chasing the High book. Dot com and that'll go right to the Amazon link. Uh, you can find me at michaelg-.com. That's my website. And if you're interested in the pro, I'm actually launching a seven-day Facebook challenge, which is free that people can go through. And if you're interested in learning more, go to my website. Uh, and also you can find me on all social media platforms. I'd love to converse with you if anybody, if I can help anybody, uh, console, uh, have a consultation call with anybody who's listening to your program, Heather, you know, I'm glad to do that uh, for them. They can just hop on there and schedule a call with me or contact me through any of the social media Very platforms. Cool. Very cool. All of that will be linked in the show notes. Definitely check that out, guys. Very last question, Michael. Let's say we were to go back in time. I can almost picture this guy jumping on Facebook and he sees Bali. He said, man, I need a trip to Bali. And he had no idea. He had so much probably anger and resentment and confusion around what was going on in his life at that time. And you just booked this trip. No idea on this journey that you were about to take and how much your life is really going to change if you were to go and sit with that man back then and tell him one thing, what would it be? It would be thank thank you for making that choice and opening up your closed mindset. Making that first step, taking that first step of action in not only your life, but in anyone's life can snowball into several other small steps that can lead to massive change. And that's what you did. Good job. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you have not subscribed yet, please head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit that subscribe button. And also, if you have a second, 
leave us a review. Lastly, we have a private Facebook group if you are looking for a tribe of like-minded leaders who are unconventional in their approach but dedicated to making an impact. Head over to Facebook and type in Unconventional Leaders and we will be sure to add you. You guys have a great week.